Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about leading people to become fully surrendered followers of King Jesus. Good morning. Merry Christmas. We are in the Advent season. We're not doing an Advent wreath this year, nor are we doing particularly Advent-oriented messages. We're in the book of Acts. Uh, Occasionally we do that. In fact, the last few years we've done Advent-oriented messages. This year we're not. We're sticking into our Acts uh, series. I want to welcome you. Um, If this is your first time, look into the camera and welcome everyone who's joining us uh, live, online, or even after the fact. We are grateful that you are here with us. Um, Okay, couple of things. I am digging into Acts 2. Um, I am looking at the Apostle Peter, um, who really is uh, about to preach um, the first sermon uh, to the first church. Kind of amazing. Um, He is, so I want you to think with me, because Peter is one of the apostles. He's getting ready to stand up. um, And so he would be a, this would be the first sermon given by a Jewish man to a group of Jews who are gathered in the holy city of Jerusalem on a Jewish holiday. Okay? And the sermon is about the Jewish Messiah, whom the Jewish leaders had crucified, and if I remind us a little bit, whom the Jewish people, when given the opportunity to either free this Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter, or Barabbas, they all yelled, Barabbas, they yelled, crucify him, and they sent Jesus to his death. Um, so what is happening here is uh, the, the city. So let's, before we start to read, we're going to pick up and start reading in, in verse 13. But before we pick up and begin to read, I want you to think with me about what's happening in the city. So there's probably different scholars have different numbers, but I'm going to say two and a half million people have gathered around the city of Jerusalem. They're camping all around the hills, all around the city for this um, Uh, holy feast uh, day and this is now 9 a.m. in the morning they're all gathered probably at the temple and the holy spirit has just been released with the winds uh, the winds of the spirit and then the fire appearing over their heads we talked all through that last week and uh, so as people though are gathering let's think quickly about the last 53 days so the entire country was in an uproar first because of a guy named John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, John the Dunker, right? He's wearing camel hair and eating like locusts and honey, and he lives out in the desert. And thousands of people are leaving the cities, going out to the desert, listening to this guy preach, and then being baptized in the Jordan River. I mean, it's amazing. So there's this shift that's happening throughout the country. And then uh, John the Baptist is imprisoned. He actually baptizes King Jesus. It begins the the work of Jesus' ministry. John goes to prison and is ultimately killed. And then Jesus uh, sort of arises, and there's three years of ministry. Now, during this time, the entire country is doing what? They're talking about it. They're gossiping about what's happening. Can you believe? Did you hear that what happened? John the Baptist did this. Did you hear that Jesus did this? Did you hear that somebody was healed? Did you hear that so-and-so was raised from the dead? Did you hear him preach? Did you talk to somebody who saw him? So there's this, there's this uh, sort of the, the, the mill of conversation and rumor and, and some things true and some things probably not true that are pumping through the country at this point in time. So everyone is talking about him. Everyone's talking about the disciples, the primary 12, and then probably the, the men and women the 70 who journeyed with Jesus, ultimately the 500. Um, And there is immense notoriety. So everyone knows sort of what's happening. And then King Jesus goes to the cross and dies. You think everybody's talking about it? You know it. You know it. And then he uh, raises from the dead. He breaks the bounds of death and hell, and he appears to 500 people. What do you think those 500 people are telling other people? I saw Jesus, right? I saw Jesus. And what do you think the people that they're telling are telling other people? There's this group of people. And they say, 
They saw Jesus. This guy that we watched being crucified on the hill outside Jerusalem. He's been doing ministry for three years. So I, so I want you to get the idea that this entire nation is in an absolute buzz and uproar over all that is happening. These aren't casual events that are just going on. Everything that Jesus did happened in such a public sphere um, that it would have been talked about and, and yammered about and passed on. And it, it just on and on and on. It, it would have gone. So in this moment, and that's one of the reasons I proposed to you that this uh, that Pentecost or the release of the Holy Spirit probably happened in the temple because I see God releasing the ministry of Jesus especially at really crucial junctures in in broad and public ways to validate and to verify sort of his identity so uh, we come up to this um, sermon now 53 days uh, prior so that's what's going on sort of in the outside the outset of Jerusalem and the hearts of men and women sort of all around. What is going on in Peter? So 50 day, three days prior, what did Peter do? He denied him, not once, not twice, but three times. And we've already been through, we preached through the end of John where Peter was actually reinstated by Jesus. In Acts 1, you get the idea that he's going through some inner healing and some restoration. So Peter's been on his own journey of some shame, can you imagine, of some guilt um, of some frustration, perhaps some disappointment with himself. He's been in the, his own sort of process. Well, I'm not worthy to be the first pastor of the first church. I'm not worthy to stand up and preach the first sermon at the first church. You, you follow me? So he's, he's in this, his own, and some of that's just Michael's vernacular and assumption, but he's human just like you and me, and he's in his own process. So the other thing that, that um, Peter is doing, and we're going to see it even in his message as we read it, but the first sermon continues this systemic change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So everything that, that Jesus did in the Gospels um, begins this systemic change. It's from, it's from the Old Testament to the New. It's from the law to grace. It's from primarily an understanding of God that is religious or outward oriented to an understanding of God that's actually inward and relational uh, oriented. It's this transition from an understanding of a Davidic kingdom, in other words, a kingdom of David, a human kingdom, um, to an unseen kingdom of God. Uh, there's this um, shift uh, from God dwelling in a room called the Holy of Holies inside Solomon's temple to now dwelling inside of us. We actually just saw that in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and fills people with the presence of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus, if you prefer. <clears throat> and uh, so, so there's this um, shift now um, as people are transitioning from Judaism as they have known it to the New Testament church and the new body of Christ, okay? So I'm trying to sort of set the table here for you to understand all that is happening. So with that being said, I want to introduce a, a quote that, that I've found really interesting before we start reading in verse 13. Um, there's, a, there's a rabbi and a therapist named Edwin uh, Friedman. Anybody heard of him? He wrote a book called Failure of Nerve, which is really interesting. But he says, the path to systemic change is for a leader to work on their own integrity and the nature of their own presence rather than techniques for manipulating or motivating others. I might have to read that to you again, huh? Okay, let's read it again. And the reason I'm even bring, introducing this is because what I want you to see as we look at Peter's words is I think what we can actually look at is Peter is now defining himself or differentiating himself at a higher level. He has come through the fires of his own um, adversity, his own failure, his own guilt, his own shame. Now Jesus is promoting him to the first pastor of the first church, giving the first sermon. And as Peter has sort of differentiated himself, um, he is defining himself himself now at a new level in Christ Jesus, and he's calling all these people up to him. Make sense? So if we skip ahead, let's go ahead and look at chapter 2, but skip ahead to verse 41 of Acts 2. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about, what does that say? 3,000 were added to their number that day. So they go from 120 people in an upper room. Um, do you think they were afraid that they were going to be crucified? 
Absolutely, hands down, no doubt about it. Peter was probably afraid that he was going to be crucified. They're barring the door. They're sneaking out uh, at the times of prayer to go to the temple. They're probably even praying sort of quietly on the side of the temple. And then back to this upper room. So, But, but the question is, what happens inside of Peter uh, as he begins to sort of define himself at a higher level in the kingdom of God? And as he even um, begins to differentiate himself from the Pharisees, from the religious leaders, from the Sadducees, um, even from his Jewish brothers and sisters. How does this happen? And so I'm even looking at sort of what is going on inside of Peter that allows him to make this drastic transition. Does that make sense? And you know that the reason we're looking at this is why? Come on. So we can also make that drastic transition because Peter is no different than you and I. He may be a little more surrendered. He may be a little more broken. He may be a little more, you know, further along in his journey. But he's the same as you and I. So the question is, how can we access the same um, power and transformation um, and even self-differentiation or self-defining that Peter accessed? So let me read my quote again. Um, a therapist and rabbi by the name of Edwin Friedman. Here's what he said. The path to systemic change. So I'm proposing to you that there's a systemic change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Moses to Jesus, also from Jesus now to his new body, um, the apostles and church people, and now us, that's right, we are body. So there's this systemic change. So the path to systemic change is for a leader to work on their own integrity and their own nature of presence rather than techniques for manipulating and motivating others. So what I want to propose to you is that God has been taking Peter in this inner transformation um, and and he is in the process or God is in the process with him and all of a sudden what shows up on this day is a man full of the Spirit um, who is absolutely transformed and he leads a transformation in the entire nation of Israel. Really good. Okay. Okay. Let me pause there because I want to tell you a side story before we read about Peter. Uh, There's a pastor um, that I I didn't know well. I knew him when I was little. Um, But I love his story, and he's influenced my life from a distance. Um, But as the story goes, I don't know all the details, but he was an associate pastor um, at a really big, uh, really wealthy church in Charlotte, a denominational church. And as the, um, as the testimony goes, he was preparing backstage, wherever he was, um, to come out and to preach a sermon. And as he was preparing, he was reading um, the scriptures. I don't know which scripture he was reading. I'd actually love to know. But as he shared, or as I've heard, um, the presence of the Holy Spirit fell on him. He fell under conviction and recognized that he had never given his life to Jesus. He's a pastor. At a big, high, steeple, you know, wealthy church, uh, full of people. This isn't, you know, a couple hundred. This is a big, huge church. And he's getting ready. And moments before he comes out, he recognizes he's never given his life to Jesus. And all of a sudden, he gets down on his knees. He surrenders his life to Jesus. And he doesn't even know what's happened. Okay, But he comes out and he begins to uh, differentiate himself or to find himself sort of at a higher level. God begins to call him into something deeper, further, more spiritually. And all of a sudden he's changing and therefore it's not long before he actually moves on from that church and he comes to another city and he starts another church and it, it just, um, there's this explosive growth because it comes from this place of um, internal self-definition, self-differentiation and the infilling power then of God in and through him as it transforms his life. Okay, modern story, very similar to the Apostle Peter. Some of you might know who I'm talking about. Okay, so here we go. Um, Let me define something else for you as we go into this because maybe it'll be helpful. Differentiation um, is the ability to uh, be fully yourself, be fully connected. Um, it's, it's like, uh, but not to take over responsibility for the person, the people you're with. Um, it, it's a little bit like, so the opposite of differentiation, let's talk about that, is, uh, would be indifference, 
um, sort of passive indifference, um, detachment. But another side of, of um, another opposite would be enmeshment. So, you know, in a church or in a family system or group system or whatever, you can have people who are sort of enmeshed and codependent. You could have people on the other side who are detached and are like emotionally um, unhealthy sort of the other way. But I would say the healthiest spot is when you, when you come to the spot where you're able to differentiate yourself appropriately from the people you're leading or journeying with, and yet you can be fully engaged, fully present, fully caring, fully empathetic um, without being codependent and carrying all their stuff. Does that make sense? Okay, so well, that's kind of a, you know, you're going, oh, Michael, you're getting a little psychological on us. Well, I am just a little bit because I think Peter's about to go through this. Okay, so let's, let's dig in and let's see what happens here. So Acts chapter 2, verse 13. So remember, they're in a room, I say in the temple. They could have been in the upper room, but I think they were in the temple. Wind has just blown through. Fire has just appeared. We preached through how that was a testimony to all the people that knew the Old Testament, that this was, in fact, God um, coming in the form of the Holy Spirit, filling people. So they're watching all this happen. Now people have begun to speak in all these various tongues, um, different languages and uh, from, from all over. So, there, so people all over the temple are like going, what is happening? And there's a huge now crowd that has gathered all around. And if 3,000 people came to Christ, I would say, who knows? There might be five or 10 or 12,000 people now who have gathered around watching or listening to this wind blow, seeing the fires over these people's heads. And it says in verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Okay, so go with me here. You're, we're this tiny little group of believers, 120 believers in the church. Wind is blowing. The Holy Spirit is showing up. We're now being filled. Flames are appearing above our heads. There's people speaking in all manner of languages, kind of this supernatural manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And all of a sudden, thousands of people begin to gather around, and they actually begin to point fun and poke fun at what's happening. So what do you want to do? I mean, really, right? You're embarrassed, okay? We have normal human emotions. They're embarrassed. So there's a group of people making fun of them. And I've even proposed to you a few times, this is purely Michael, I can't point it out in Scripture, but because of the way I understand um, all of the complexities of what was being talked about with the Lord Jesus in the New Testament times, I think that people then would have known that Peter was this, like, you know, real close to Jesus' disciple, and they would have known that Peter betrayed Jesus. And I'm convinced that when people saw, like Romans or other Jews saw the Apostle Peter on the street that they would have even made fun of him at points and gone things like <laughs> I mean you hear me people haven't changed right we're, we're cruel and mean at different points. So if, if the Apostle Peter is being made fun of, so he comes to this crossroads where uh, the Holy Spirit has been released. The Holy Spirit is now living inside of him. And I would love to like be a little fly on the wall or even understand what the Apostle Peter is thinking at this moment. But I can only imagine the tension between, am I going to stand up and courageously preach the gospel, first sermon, first church, or... Deny him a fourth time. And so we're at this crossroads. Verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. The transformation in Peter to go from the guy who was denying him at the fire when the little slave girl asks, aren't you one of his, to this ability to stand up in the face of being mocked and made fun of and begin to address them is, is an extraordinary transformation. L listen carefully to what I say, verse 15. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through this quickly. I'm not going to pause here too long. I'll make a few comments. But he's quoting the prophet Joel. It's Joel 2. And it says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And he's literally likening that to what has just taken place. Okay? The wind has blown through. The fire have appeared, people are speaking in all sorts of different languages. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. 
very, very contrary to all of the rabbinic tradition at this point. They're naming women in this. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below. Let me say here that um, there's a, a messianic era. If we were like in seminary, they'd say there's a messianic era that spans from when Jesus first came. So born where? Yeah, Bethlehem and laid in a manger, probably in a little cave. People say a, um, a, a stable, but it was probably likely a cave stable. Um, laid in a manger after he's, he's uh, given birth. So the Messianic era stretches from the birth of Christ through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ all the way to the return of Christ. So Jesus comes twice. We've experienced One of those, there's a whole other return of Christ that will happen. So we now have entered into the Messianic era, and Peter is sort of acknowledging that. Verse 20, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. That would be his second return, okay? Um, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which is happening, literally being fulfilled right here in this moment. Verse 22, People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. So what is he saying there? You know Jesus of Nazareth was accredited to you or was God because he did miracles, signs, and wonders, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So th- this is the same group of people that would have journeyed around the countryside and watched Jesus performing miracles. This is the same group of people, some of them for sure, would have been there yelling, crucify him in front of Pontius Pilate when Barabbas was being set free. And now Peter um, is full of boldness. So the guy that was like shirking in shame and running and hiding is now full of boldness, um, And he's saying, uh, God accredited him to you by miracle signs and wonders, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. I love that. Did Pontius Pilate kill Jesus? Well, yes. And no. Only that Jesus laid his life down, is one one text, um, but it was God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So, so in other words, um, the Romans aren't more powerful than God. Herod isn't more powerful than God. The Pharisees aren't more powerful than God. This is God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, which was put into place way back at the garden. We did this last week. The moment sin entered the world, and I would say even before sin entered the world, they knew, God knew, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son knew and put this um, plan into play even before the world started. Okay, that's what he's saying there. And you, with the help of wicked men. I mean, like, could the crowd storm Peter right now? Yes! 53 days ago, they killed who? Do you think that it's in the mind of some people who are listening that we ought to go grab this whatever young whippersnapper and and drag him out and crucify him? Guarantee it is. So, so here is Peter in the face, and I, he, did Peter know he was going to live through the day? Like, get that a second. Did he know that he was going to, you know, make it to dinner time? No. Where did this boldness come from? But <clears throat> God's plan and foreknowledge with the help, and you with the help. So, I mean, he's going, you killed him. You killed him as he's addressing the crowd at the temple. You killed him with the help of wicked men. Who are the wicked men? Pharisees? Yeah. Sadducees? Yeah. Romans? Pontius Pilate? Herod? I mean, he is like, uh, I, I mean, he, he's just taking this to a whole nother level. You put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, when Peter says this, everyone that's sitting around and standing around would have seen, uh, and if they didn't see, they probably would have known someone who saw or they would have known someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who saw. Okay, so this is like active current events that are, that are happening. Um, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, 
Peter switches again back to the Old Testament. Did they have the New Testament at this moment? No. And I don't think for a minute that Peter knew how significant he was going to be in the lives of the church thousands of years later in other countries, across oceans, here in America. I don't think he had any idea. He was just being faithful, taking his next little step, preaching the first sermon to the first church and going, okay, I'm not gonna bail out on Jesus this time and deny him. I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna proclaim it boldly. Okay. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Who's him? Jesus. Now David said about him, now this is a psalm that that, um, Peter is now quoting because everyone um, would have had the psalms, portions of the psalms, portions of the the Torah, portions of the the Old Testament memorized. So Peter's now going to quote it. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. So so what Peter is beginning to introduce is he's beginning to quote Old Testament um, texts and passages that foretell the coming of Jesus. And not just foretell the coming of Jesus, they actually foretell um, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Okay, So he's, he's quoting it here. Um, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. And he just said, uh, but God raised him from the dead. So he's proving to some of these religious leaders and the people listening that God foreknew, God's foreknowledge, God knew all this was going to happen. But you, uh, because you will not abandon him, verse 27, um, to the realm of the dead, you will not let your holy one see decay. Okay, did David die? Yes. Did his body decay? Yeah. Yeah. Did Jesus die? Yes. Did his body decay? No. He broke the bounds of death and hell. He was resurrected. He broke the grave, and then he ascended. So David um, prophetically wrote in the Old Testament about King Jesus who would come, who would die, and who would be resurrected. Verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So he's even likening that to the infilling of the Holy Spirit. This just happened. Then he, then he switches. He's, he's no longer quoting. He's now going to address the crowd again. Brothers and sisters. And I love that he's saying even sisters there. This is so rare. This is so rare. Like the, from the beginning of the New Testament church, women are always included. Um, it's fascinating. We all know that the patriarch David died and was buried. So that's King David, right? And his tomb is here to this day. They could have walked out of Jerusalem and walked over to his tomb. They, they, could, they knew where it was. Verse 30, but he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. So this is all Old Testament. We're not going to open it all up. But God promised King David that one of his descendants would rule. And David sort of thought in his vernacular on his throne from Jerusalem. And what God was beginning to open up was the meaning that he, someone was going to rule and reign, but it would be God's sovereign, God Almighty, and he would establish the kingdom of God, which is infinitely larger than Jerusalem or Israel or Rome or Herod or any of the the stuff. Um, Verse 31, uh, seeing what was to come, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead. Okay, so what's he saying there? God did not leave him dead. He Raised him up, okay, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. So he's saying there's 500 of us here in this crowd, in this midst, that saw a resurrected Jesus, and all of you all saw him, or those of you who saw him up on that hill, dying, crucified, then he was dead and buried, and then he resurrected, and then he ascended. So he's calling on the firsthand knowledge and experience of all these people in the crowd, and he's proving, again, that this Jesus was um, predestined, prophetically declared from the Old Testament to be God incarnate and to come and make a new way for people to walk with Yahweh God. Make sense? Okay, hang in. All right, Um, where am I? 33. God raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses to that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he poured out what 
uh, you now see and hear. So he's saying, because they're hearing all these people speaking in different languages, right? They're seeing fire. They're feeling and seeing. You can't really see wind, but they're feeling the effects of the wind blow through. They hear it um, blowing through. Uh, so he's saying, um, you're all witnesses. Okay, okay. Verse 34, for David uh, did not ascend to heaven. Now he's flipping back to the Old Testament. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a picture of God the Father having the Lord Jesus. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, but ascend back into heaven. He's coronated. He's crowned um, king of heaven and earth, takes his rightful place. And then he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, I mean, he's calling it out. Like feel that a second. If there was a moment where Peter should have been rushed and killed, it would be verse, verse 36, right? Therefore, I mean, do you think he was timidly whispering? Therefore, I don't imagine so. Therefore, let all Israel, and if 2.5 million people are there at 9 a.m. on a holy feast day, they're all gathered around, people would have heard him. The Temple Mount is actually up high. People could have probably seen him from all over. If this had spilled out in the larger temple and the outer courtyards, they may have even seen or heard him beyond. And he's saying here, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord of heaven and earth and Jewish Messiah. Okay? Now, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What's that mean? Convicted. I like that. That's a good word. So they're cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, uh, what shall we do? So, so Peter's preaching. He comes to this stop. He, he issues a dramatic, like, um, it's not even an accusation. It's a factual statement. This is what you did. Boom. No conclusion, no sweet story, no, you know, guitar music. And the crowd says, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We don't even like to use that word anymore, do we? We're afraid we're going to run people away. Repent! It's like a church word, and it has become offensive. I think um, there's people who are religious and focus more on cleaning up the outside where it can become offensive. Actually, for me, the word repent is like, um, it means restoring relationship and, and abiding and keep on connection and relationship with God. That's a wonderful word. When I'm separated from him, if I can repent and, and renew and restore that relationship with him, that's a powerful, beautiful word. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Now, are we included in that? Oh, yeah. For, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And if you're in Jesus, you've been called. Yeah. Verse 40, with many other words, he warned them. That means I, if you actually time this, this sermon's like three and a half minutes or something. I'm really glad they put that verse 40 in there. That just made me feel better that, you know, Peter wasn't a total minimalist. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. I get the, um, the hostile language there. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay, so here's what I want to open up for us in our, in our remaining minutes before we move towards communion. What... What happened inside of Peter that allowed him to go from a hothead fisherman who stuck his foot in his mouth all the time to um, humiliated and embarrassed that he had denied his Lord? And, and there's one passage in Luke, I didn't pull it up today, but if you go there, there's this, Peter denies him in Luke once, twice, three times. And then there's this powerful moment where Peter looks up and Jesus looks over and their eyes meet right after he denies him the third time. And it's like, what is happening? And Jesus, I just imagine him extending already. I love you, son. I forgive you. You are covered. 
I am paying the penalty right now for your sin to make a way so that you can become a son of the Most High. And then Peter, looking at the Lord Jesus, unable to receive the kindness, the tenderness, the grace, the forgiveness, and probably immediately Peter's covered with his own guilt, his own shame, his own self-hatred, and he's buried um, sort of inside this thing. So what happens in 53 days that Peter goes from running away and hiding and denying Jesus to preaching the first sermon? So I've got a couple things here. Number one, I think he begins to reconcile his past. He faces himself. One of the things that I think we lack in the church, uh, Christians we lack, and it's because we don't understand the grace of God, I believe. But we resist facing who? Yeah, we love to talk about other people, don't we? It's much easier to judge other people. Do you believe what Wayne did? Like it's just easy, right? And it usually makes us feel a little better if we can find somebody who's not doing it as well as we are. We can be a little bit critical and oh, just, right? But Peter um, faces himself. In, in the prodigal son story, it actually says he came to himself. And I think Peter uh, faces himself, his sin, his failure, his betrayal of Christ Jesus. And he begins to recognize the depth of his own sin, his own depravity. And in that process, he comes at some point to King Jesus. And there's, there's several scriptures that would indicate that Peter had a private meeting with the Lord Jesus that is not recorded in scripture. And we don't know what happened, but I imagine what happened there is there was a personal intimate. It was actually after Jesus' resurrection, but there was a personal intimate um, restoration and forgiveness of Peter's sin. So number one, he begins to reconcile his past. He faces himself. Number two, he recognizes his calling. I'm not going to go there, but if you want to read Matthew 16, uh, Jesus is actually at a spot called Caesarea Philippi, and he's walking with his disciples, and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And they give a bunch of answers. And then he looks at them kind of directly. You get this idea that he stops walking and looks at them. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, on this rock, I will build my church. I think there's double meaning there because Peter's name actually means rock. So I think there's a, the, the double meaning is on this rock, I will build my church. In other words, the church will be built on the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, number one. But number two, on this rock, Peter, you will be the first pastor of the first church and preach the first sermon in the city of Jerusalem. So number one, he begins to reconcile his past. Number two, he recognizes and receives his calling. Number three, he receives an anointing from God. John 21, when Jesus reinstates him, I think there is also not just the forgiveness of what Peter's done, but there is a full release of the anointing of God onto the life of Peter to begin to prepare him to stand up and preach this sermon. Number four, he begins finding personal health and wholeness inside of him. John 21 and Acts 1. Now, I want to go back to where we started this whole thing. He, Peter, begins to differentiate himself from Judaism. So the Old Testament law. Um, he's differentiating himself mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He's differentiating himself, himself from group think. He's even beginning to get free so that, remember, he can begin to usher the, the um, Jews from the Old Testament and the old way from Moses to Jesus. So he, he is um, defining himself sort of at this higher level. He's differentiating himself. Um, and then he's offering that all these people come with him. And how many come? 3,000. That's right. Number six, he differentiates himself from the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes. In other words, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, he's able to look past where they're living, and he's actually now beckoning them to repent and come find the life of Christ. <clears throat> he, he um, in this moment, has the courage to do what's right, um, even if it costs him his life. I would bet inside Peter's head as he's standing up preaching this sermon that he's going, I bet I'm going to die today. I bet they are going to kill me. Number seven, I would say to you that Peter is learning to recognize and reject his flesh 
um, his sin. Paul in the New Testament would call it sarks. Um, today, if you're sitting with a different counselor, they may call it your false self or something. But regardless, it's Peter is learning to recognize his sinful self. He's learning to surrender his life to the Lord Jesus, not just once, but daily. He's learning to abide in the presence of God. He's learning to exchange his brokenness for the life of Christ on him, in him, and through him. So he's abiding with Jesus. And then number eight, he risks total rejection. Is Peter going to be welcomed after this sermon back into the synagogue? Absolutely not. Is he going to be welcomed back into the temple? Is he going to be welcomed back into his larger uh, uh, family? So in this one moment, one fell swoop, he would have lost his synagogue, he'd lost his temple, he'd lost his, his uh, roots and his familial family, but also his larger Jewish heritage. He's going to be in some ways excommunicated from everything, and he risks total rejection um, to, to stand up and preach Jesus. So Peter abandons sort of self-protective kind of relating um, to other people, sacrificing his life and his liberty to tell the whole truth he risks he he offends everybody in Jerusalem and yet somehow 3,000 people give their lives to King Jesus I mean it's amazing I read something by uh, Dr. Larry Crabb and he said the greatest obstacle in building true healthy relationships is justified self-centeredness a selfishness that deep in our souls feels entirely reasonable and therefore justified and acceptable because of how we've been treated. Could Peter have hated the Pharisees? Absolutely. Could he have hated the Jewish leaders? Could he have hated the crowds that gathered that day that chanted, crucify him? But he laid all of that down and then he risked full rejection. Um, he, he risked uh, you know, fear of standing out. I don't like to stand out, do you? I don't like to be criticized, do you? Remember, they're all whispering about him. They're all making fun of him. And he has this, this decision, am I going to stand up and preach the gospel of Christ Jesus? So he, he risks uh, full rejection. And then beyond rejection, he risks absolute death. I, got a, I had a moment, and I was just honest with myself as I was sort of reading through this. I'm, I do that once in a while. I'd recommend you do the same thing. But what I considered was how many things I refused to do out of fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear that I'm going to be made fun of, fear that people aren't going to like me. And I, and I had this moment. I've been a Christian since I was four, and I've got a dark seven-year hole in my life that I'll tell you more about one day. But the Lord's been so gracious in uh, my life. But I assumed as a young Christian, I'm 10, 12, 14, 16 years old, walking with Jesus, I assumed that by the time I was 41, I would never struggle. I'd be a saint, right? I'd have everything worked out. I would be a model. And, and the magnitude of times that I... Um, don't do the things that God has put on my heart to do in obedience to him out of fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of being made fun of. And Peter, filled with the power of the Spirit on this day, stands up and faces his shame, faces his sin, faces his failure, faces the people that mock him and make fun of him, faces the ones that are making fun of the church in this very moment, and he preaches this sermon, and it says they're cut to the heart, and 3,000 people come to Jesus. Come on. We ought to take courage and take up our place like the apostle Peter. Okay. I want to make one little pivot to our own lives, and I'm going, to, um, I'm going to give you five very practical tools for how you can engage in healthier differentiation like Peter. Okay? You ready? Five of them. Number one, begin to practice having difficult conversations without defensiveness, anxiety, or heat. If I sat down with your spouse and said, how often do you guys have difficult conversations and share 
what you're really thinking and feeling without defensiveness, anxiety, and heat. What would I hear? It's true for friends. It's true for roommates. Okay? Just a way. You begin to differentiate yourself at a higher level, and you begin to, like Peter did, because you don't get the idea that Peter's defensive. He's not anxious. He's not even angry. He just tells the truth. This is what it is. So number one, have difficult conversations without defensiveness, anxiety, or heat. Number two, spend some time gaining clarity on the problem or pattern you're trying to address. What do I mean by that? I could give you a dozens of examples, but here's one. Um, you're a married couple. Uh, we overspend. We don't tithe. We live beyond our means. We need to address that. We need to talk about it. We need to see what's happening in a non-defensive, non-anxious, non-angry, non-frustrated, no heat, but begin to talk about what's happening and why have we allowed this to happen in our lives. Or maybe uh, we let our kids run our house. Or maybe you're in college and you have like one foot in the party world and one foot in the Jesus world and you're kind of dancing back and forth and you're like, oh, no, no. You hear what I'm saying? So, so there's things that as we grow as people begin to look at and spend some time um, gaining clarity uh, on the problem or pattern you're trying to address. Okay, so number one, have difficult conversations without defensiveness or anxiety. Number two, gain clarity on the problem or pattern you're trying to address. Number three, practice, this is so hard for us, practice being exposed and vulnerable even in non-friendly groups. Emotionally exposed, spiritually exposed and vulnerable even in front of non-friendly groups. Was Peter emotionally exposed and vulnerable on this day? You better believe it. So when I stand up here, last week I opened with, um, I, have a, I recognize I have a tendency to be a, anybody remember? People pleaser. The pastor said that. I have a deep need to be respectable. I have a deep need to be right. can't remember the other thing I said. It'll come back to me. Wait for it. I have a deep need to be impressive. Now, why would I stand up here and share vulnerably? What does it do? Go there a second. What does it do? So the first thing it does is it like breaks down the walls that you have in your heart to an authentic journey with Jesus. And it also says to you, I am just a normal guy that puts my pants and deodorant on too. Okay? Don't put me on a pedestal. I'm going to keep kicking it down. Because we stand on, on uh, even ground at the foot of the cross. So I see Peter being vulnerable as he stands up. He's not talking about his failure, but his very act of standing up is stepping forward in front of a group of people who know that he denied Christ, who've been making fun of him. And he stands up in the face of it, in all of his vulnerability, in all of his failure and shame, and he overcomes it by the blood of Jesus. So practice. Thing number one was have difficult conversations without defensiveness. Thing number two, gain clarity on the problem or pattern you're trying to address. Peter's trying to switch the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New, Moses to Jesus. Okay, then number three, practice being um, emotionally and spiritually exposed and vulnerable even in non-friendly groups. Oof, I had a couple people show up in my office last week and go, why did you say that? You did? Number four, clarify the difference between enmeshment and empathy. Ooh. Can I empathize and have compassion without, with where you're walking or what you're going through without carrying you? Yeah. We have a rule on our staff team, and, and here's what I always say. Um, if uh, someone's going to make a drastic mistake and they're going like, to hurt somebody, then you know, get in the way, call time out, like, stop the train, right? If it's a minor mistake and it's going to become a growth area, what do you think I say? Yeah, if they're going to graze the side of the building, let them graze it. We'll polish the car up. I'll help them. You hear me? Because it's an authentic, um, it's an authentic journey. So it's clarifying the, dish, uh, the, the difference between enmeshment and empathy. And last thing, number five, is clarify the difference between walking alongside, alongside someone as they carry their load um, versus you carrying their load for them. 
Now, in Christ, it says, there's actually a passage that says, bear one another's burdens. But I don't think that means that I go over to Denise and go, well, Denise, I'm going to carry all of your stuff. And I walk around behind Denise, right? Denise carries her own stuff, doesn't she? But it does mean that I can come around and go, Denise, I'm going to help you a little bit. I'm going to support you as you walk through this difficulty. So let's end here. Uh, number one, how do you engage in healthy personal differentiation like Peter did on, in Acts 2? Have difficult conversations without defensiveness. Number two, gain clarity on the problem and pattern you're trying to address. Number three, practice being um, emotionally and spiritually exposed and vulnerable even in non-friendly groups. Uh, number four, clarify the difference between enmeshment and empathy. Number five, clarify the difference between walking alongside someone as they carry their stuff and you carrying it for them. Did Peter carry the weight of the Pharisees' sin on that day? Pointed it out. And they said, brothers, what should we do? And he said, repent, get right. This Jesus will forgive you. Okay. If you guys want to come out, that'd be great. I'm going to read this um, instead of saying it today. This is from 1 Corinthians 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. Father, on this day, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, your Supper, the Supper that you led the apostles through and have called us to continue, I pray that you would take these common elements and you would set them apart for us. And as we eat this bread and this juice, Father, would you allow us to appropriate into our hearts, into our lives, into our deep spirit being the Lordship of Christ Jesus, the resurrection of Christ Jesus, that you're the God who wants to lead us to life and wholeness, to joy, to peace, to hope, that the resurrection power of Christ Jesus can now live in us and through us and can take people like Peter who've run and hid and make them the first pastor of the first church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Ushers, if you guys would come forward, here's what we're going to do. Uh, they're going to dis or have you stand up kind of row by row, and you're going to come. Um, you're going to exit this side of your section, come down front, and then you're going to go back to your seat uh, this way. Um, so this section over here, you're going to come down to maybe Martin and Deborah. Martin and Deborah, you guys over there. That's great. This section, you guys are going to come down to the middle, whoever's going to be here side you're coming down here over to see Roger and Ann. Um, I think Don, are you dismissing us? Okay, let's as we go, um, let's just worship the Lord. They'll lead us in a, Daniel will lead us in a worship song. Um, if you'll hold the elements, I'll say one final prayer and we'll take it together. If you're not comfortable taking communion, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, feel free to just sit. Okay.
finished work of the cross of Christ in your life. Not where you've failed. Not where you've dropped the ball. But remembering the price he paid so that you and I could stand righteous before a holy God. Take and eat and drink. Father, as we go from this place today, I pray that you would raise up a group in this house, in this church, that knows who you are, and because they know who you are, they know who they are. Father, I pray you'd raise us up to be a group of men and women and young people that walk boldly and confidently with you, knowing our purposes, having reconciled our pasts, being set free to live fully in your spirit by your grace. closing, I'd love for us to declare the Great Commission together. David, I don't know if you're back there this morning or this whatever it is this morning. Can you put that Matthew verse up if you're back there, David? And if you're not, we'll proceed without you. Looks like we're proceeding without. (laughs) As you go today, may you go under the revelation that this is the God who has given you all authority in heaven and on earth, and that you are called to go and make disciples, baptizing men and women and children in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.